0: This morning's sermon text is found in Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. If you'd like to take out your Bible and follow along as I read. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1425, Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now, Observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those, indeed, of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises." But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, For on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe for which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, Thou art a priest forever. So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them.
1: Now, what we want to do with that text this morning is not so much dwell on all of those details as to get the big picture... And then focus on the main point. Now, the big picture is not hard to get. It's about priesthood and the superior priesthood of Jesus over Aaron, Levi, Abraham, and in line with this strange, typical figure who showed up one time in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, having no apparent father and no apparent mother and seemed to appear and disappear and became a kind of type and pointer to Christ. And then Psalm 110, verse 4, he is mentioned one other time in the Old Testament when it says, I have sworn, speaking of the Messiah, to you, you will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Meaning some new priesthood is going to emerge because the old priesthood of Levi and Aaron could not make anybody's conscience or life or soul perfect and therefore, that whole system had to be scrapped and a new priest emerged, namely Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek, as it were, jumping over the whole priestly order of Levi and Aaron. So the big picture is priesthood, a superior priesthood. Jesus is a priest between us and God, the only one we need. Nobody on earth needs to assume that role for us. And he is superior to all previous Priest, That's the big picture. Now, the main point of the passage is verse 25. And you can tell that by the introductory word, hence, or therefore, or accordingly, or consequently, depending on what version you have. But they all mean the same thing. This big picture, superior priesthood of Jesus, is displayed for us with all of those complex thoughts that... Russ just read for us. And then this incredibly practical, glorious conclusion is drawn for our lives. Hence, also, He, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Why? Since He always lives to make intercession for them Now there are three parts to that verse it breaks out very easily Number 1 Christ is able to save forever Number 2 Let's go to the end of the verse to pick it up Because he always lives to make intercession for those whom he saves And who is that Point number 3 in the middle sandwiched in there Everyone who draws near to God through Him. Now I want you to think with me about the relationship between the first and the last phrase or clause in this verse. The first one is Christ is able to save forever. And the last one is He does that because He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, what's the relationship between those two statements? It's all in that word since or because, right? He is able to save forever since or because he intercedes or prays forever. So the connection is one of a cause or support. The reason that you can count on being saved forever by Jesus is that He keeps on forever praying for you. If Jesus did not go on praying for you, the implication is you would not be saved. Now, the implications of this are huge. And I want to draw out two of them. Two huge implications of saying that my eternal salvation, He is able to save John Piper forever, rests upon His eternal praying for me. His eternal intercession for me. We got that so far? What does that imply? And the two big implications will take one at a time. Number one, it answers the question, from what am I being saved? From what am I being saved? Now, the reason I start with this is because in our culture, which is increasingly a post Christian culture, you can't assume that the word saved, are you saved, means anything to anybody, or that the word salvation means anything. They might fill those words up with meaning totally contrary to the Bible, and so we have to get at least our heads and our hearts straight on this matter of what we are being saved from. Now, let me pose the question for you. Don't jump around to other parts of the Bible. Just stay right here with this verse. If I say my ongoing salvation depends on Christ's ongoing intercessory work for me with the Father, what do I need saving from? The Father. God else I would not need an intercessor. Intercessors interpose themselves to help fix something that isn't fixed or to keep something fixed that is fixed. The big issue is God's wrath. Now let's just get this real clear and real straight because I have the feeling we live in such a kind of touchy-feely day That Christianity is being so psychologized and so therapeutized that we really do believe this book was written for our mental health. It wasn't. It was written to help us get right with a wrathful God. God is one great massive fire of holiness. He hates sin and cannot abide it. We are little ant-like cinders of sin. And if we got within 10 trillion miles of this God, we'd be consumed. The problem in the universe is not our fragile marriages. The problem in the universe is not my failing health The problem in the universe is not my wayward children. The problem in the universe is not the conflicts at work. The problem that the Bible was written to deal with is, I have no hope of drawing near to God without being consumed. Because I'm a sinner. And unless there is some kind of asbestos-like priest... Who can wrap me around with all he is and take me into the center of this fire? There's no hope for me at all. That's what the Bible is about. Now there are some spin-offs for our mental health and our marriages and our kids and our jobs, but those are just spin-offs folks, and if everything went wrong and this got right, you would leap for joy. Forever and ever and ever. Because God is the main issue. Life is very short. Sin is very horrid. And salvation is so needed. So, the first implication of saying that my salvation depends upon eternal intercession is that there must be something about God and me that can't get along. And it's sin. God's holiness and my sin. And I have to have a priest. Until you get this straight in your head, Hebrews is a closed book. All this mumbo-jumbo about Melchizedek. You remember back in chapter 5 when he said, I have much to tell you about Melchizedek and you are dull of hearing and you can't get it. You know what they couldn't get? Sin, holiness, and priesthood. That's that's the universe. I'm a sinner. God is holy. Wrath burning against sin. And there's a priesthood to solve it. That's That's what the Bible is about. Don't let the Bible become trivialized for you down into a little self-help book that makes your life just a little better this week. Stand like a rock on a rock that the Bible's got a message about the big issues of life. Namely, whether you're going to live forever inside the fire of the glory of God so wrapped in asbestos righteousness from Jesus that you can enjoy it forever. That's what I'm looking forward to. Right into the center of the throne that is aflame with glory. Now that's the first implication. The second implication of saying that my eternal salvation hangs on an eternal eternal intercession, is this. Salvation is not static. As though I did something once to get saved. I believed. And God did something once to save me. He sent Jesus to die and rise from the dead. And that's all there is to it. Now this verse is one screaming announcement. That is not all there is to it. And what I want to try to do in these last moments is is take a Sunday school understanding that's true. That simple past, I believe, he died, I'm saved. Period. And grow it into biblical proportions with a verse like Hebrews 7.25. Because Hebrews 7.25 says... There is not only more that Jesus did, there is more that you do as well. What Jesus does is go on praying for you, interceding for you, coming between you and the Father and making a case for you and standing up for you. I'm going to stick in a parenthesis here to try to avoid a misunderstanding. Parenthesis. Do not conclude from my first implication that Jesus loves me and God hates me. Okay, let's get this straight now. The reason that would be a false conclusion is because the priesthood is God's idea, not Jesus' idea. And Jesus accepted The Father's mandate to come save me from His wrath. You got that? The love of God for me, sinner, interposes His priestly Son to save me from His wrath against me. you got to handle that or you can't make sense out of the Bible. The love of God for this worthless sinner interposes His most precious possession, His Son whom He loves, in order that He might save me from His wrath against me. All the while vindicating His justice and upholding His glory in the cross. That's the beauty of the cross. It is the love of God, rescuing sinners from the wrath of God, by vindicating the justice of God and upholding the glory of God. You gotta get that. Otherwise you will sentimentalize God. And people are sentimentalizing God everywhere because they say, oh, in order to have a God of love, you gotta get rid of wrath. You don't, you don't have a God of love in biblical proportions if there's no wrath from which to save and no son to offer up to his wrath to show his love. Close The second implication that we're working on now is that salvation is not static. Don't just say, I believed and I was saved. Say also, that's true, also Jesus is saving me. He's going to save me forever. First half of verse 25. I'm not making this up. It's there. Read it. Jesus goes on saving me by going on praying for me. And what I do is don't just look back and say, I believe, I believe. I remember I walked the aisle or I signed the card or I knelt with my mother in Fort Lauderdale, Florida when I was six years old, which I did. You don't just say that. You say, I today and for all of my life will draw near to God through Jesus. Because that's the person and the only person for whom Jesus prays and whom He saves. If we are born of God, we will draw near to God through Jesus. This tense of this verb, draw near to God, there is a tense... In Greek, for a single act, not repeated. And there is a tense for ongoing, repeated, continuous action. And that's what's here. Those who keep on drawing near to God are the ones that enjoy the priestly work of Jesus. You're going through Jesus, and as long as you're going through Jesus, he's praying for you. He's moving on the Father. He's your advocate. I write these things to you, little children, that you might not sin, but if you sin, you have a what with the Father? An advocate, an intercessor, a lawyer in the court who wins every case against you. Now, John Owen wrote seven volumes on the book of Hebrews. A seven-volume commentary, each with about 550 pages. And uh, I want to quote John Owen. Bless the memory of John Owen. The safest conception that can be had of the intercession of Christ is his continual appearance for us, In the presence of God by virtue of his office as the high priest over the house of God, representing the efficacy of his outpoured blood, Accompanied with tender care, love, and desires for the welfare, supply, deliverance, and salvation of the church. Three things, therefore, are involved. One, the presentation of his person before the throne of God on our behalf. Two, the representation of his death and bloodshedding and sacrifice, which gives power and life and efficacy unto his intercession. And third... Both of these do not render it prayer or intercession, for intercession is prayer. Wherefore, there is in it a requesting and an offering unto God of his desires and will for the church attended with care and love and compassion. I am saved Today and will be saved tomorrow and all eternity because Hebrews 7.25c says he always lives to pray for me. Close with this question. What's he praying for? What's he asking God for? Now there are a lot of answers to that question. You know, Owen said are requesting his desires and will for the church with care and love and compassion. But if you stay just with this verse, verse 25, and ask, what is he praying for? I would answer by asking, what do I need in order to be saved forever? And what's the answer to that from this verse? What do I need in order to be saved forever And the answer is, I need to keep drawing near to God through Jesus. Therefore, I think that's what he prays. It says in Hebrews 13, 21, that by the blood of the eternal covenant, this Jesus was raised. And through Jesus, God is working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Now, apply that to verse 25 here. Through Jesus, God is working what is pleasing in His sight. Namely, a drawing near to God through Jesus. But if if God is working our drawing near to Him so that He's stirring up within me and you a desire to draw near to God through Him, what does it mean that He's doing it through Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus is praying for it. He purchased it by his blood, and he prays for it by his intercession. Let me close with an illustration of this from Jesus' life on earth while he began interceding for Christians. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looking Peter in the face and telling him, before the cock crows three times, or before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter protests, no. And Jesus says this, Luke twenty-two, thirty-one. 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. There is another person in heaven. We learn it from this text. We learn it from Job. And he's doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus is doing. He's accusing and he's getting permission To really rough you up. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But what will Jesus do now? When these two people stand before God Almighty, and Satan says, I'm going to sift him like wheat, I'm going to push him through this grate, and I am going to sift out of him every ounce of faith this night. Mm. Jesus stands up and he interposes himself by the priesthood and he prays. This is what he says. Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when, not if, when, this is the authoritative priestly intercessor whose prayers always are answered. When you turn, Again, strengthen your brothers. Now what happened? Jesus said to the Father, Father, I know that in your sovereignty you have ordained him to deny me three times. That's why I can predict it with infallibility. He is going to fall tonight. But Father... Though Satan intends by those falls to sift him of every faith that he's got, I ask you, when I turn my face toward him after the third denial, break him, please, on the authority and merit of my blood, I pray, amen. And God did it. And that's what he's doing in your life. This morning I got up, my nose was all clogged, and I was so tired. And I said, oh, God, I need a promise. I need some help here. And God elbowed me and said, you're going to preach on a promise. Read your text. (laughs) And the heart is deceitful above all things and can be blind to what you preach. And then when I took heed to that admonition, all morning long, as I sat there on the pew, as I prayed back there and down there, as I got ready this morning, I have just said to myself over and over again, in the name of Jesus, he is praying for me. He is praying for me. He is praying for me. And if I need anything in this pulpit to accomplish his will, he will get it from the Father for me, sinner though I be. Father, this is a glorious Advent truth that Jesus came into the world to purchase our redemption and now forever and ever and ever by the power of an indestructible life applies that purchase against your wrath and holiness that we in him might enjoy you. And we marvel. I pray for those in this room who are outside Christ. Oh God, may they hear this invitation. Everyone who draws near to God through Jesus will be prayed for and will be saved. Oh sweet Jesus, receive our trust and pray for us today because we need you. I'll stand here at the front for a while and prayer teams will be here. If you want to pray about anything at all, we'd love to pray. Why don't you stand for a benediction as I let you go. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and present you without blemish before the throne of His glory with rejoicing to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory and power and majesty and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen.